Chapter 41 of The Deluge, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Deluge, Volume 2, by Henrik Sienkiewicz. Translated by Jeremiah Kurtau, 1835-1906. Chapter 41 Though Ketling was near the person of Prince Boguslav, he did not know all, and could not tell of all that was done in Taurogi, for he was blinded himself by love for Panna Bilevich. Boguslav had also another confidant, Pan Sakovich, the starosta of Oshmiana, and he alone knew how deeply the prince was involved by love for his charming captive, and what means he was using to gain her heart and her person. That love was merely a fierce desire, for Boguslav's heart was not capable of other feelings. But the desire was so violent that that experienced cavalier lost his head, and often in the evening, when alone with the starosta, he seized his own hair and cried, I am burning, Sakovich, I am burning. Sakovich found means at once. Whoso wishes to take honey must drug the bees, said he, and has your physician few of such intoxicating herbs? Give him the word today, and tomorrow the affair will be over. But the prince did not like such a method, and that for various reasons. First, on a time, old Heraclius Bilevich, the grandfather of Olenka, appeared to him in a dream, and standing at his pillow, looked with threatening eyes till the first crowing of the cocks. Boguslav remembered the dream, for that night, without fear, was superstitious. Dreaded charms, dream warnings, and supernatural apparitions so much that a shiver passed through him at thought of the terror and the shape in which that phantom might come a second time, should he follow Sakovich's counsel. The starosta of Oshmiana himself, who did not believe greatly in God, but who, like the prince, dreaded dreams and enchantments, staggered somewhat in giving advice. The second reason of Boguslav's delay was that the Valachian woman was living with her stepdaughter in Taurogi. They called Princess Rajivil, the wife of Janusz, the Valachian woman. That lady, coming from a country in which her sex have rather free manners, was not, in truth, over-stern. Nay, maybe she understood too well the amusements of courtiers and ladies-in-waiting. Still, she could not endure that at her side a man, the coming husband of her stepdaughter, should do a deed calling to heaven for vengeance. But even later, when through the persuasions of Sakovich and with the consent of the Prince Voyevoda of Vilno, the Valachian woman went with Janusz's daughter to Kurland, Boguslav did not dare to do the deed. He feared the terrible outcry which would rise throughout all Lithuania. The Bileviches were wealthy people. They would not fail to crush him with a prosecution. The law punished such deeds with loss of property, honour and life. The Rajivils, it is true, were powerful and might trample on law, 
but when victory in war was inclining to the side of Jan Kazimir, the young prince might fall into serious difficulties in which he would lack power, friends and henchmen. And just then it was hard to foresee how the war would end. Forces were coming every day to Jan Kazimir, the power of Karl Gustav was decreasing absolutely by the loss of men and the exhaustion of money. Prince Boguslav, an impulsive but calculating man, reckoned with the position. His desires tormented him with fire, his reason advised restraint, superstitious fear bridled the outbursts of his blood. At the same time, disease fell upon him. Great and urgent questions rose, involving frequently the fate of the whole war, and all these causes rent the soul of the prince till he was mortally wearied. Still, it is unknown how the struggle might have ended, had it not been for Boguslav's self-love. He was a man of immense self-esteem. He counted himself an unequalled statesman, a great leader, a great knight, and an invincible captor of the hearts of women. Was he to use force or intoxicating drugs? He who carried around with him a bound casket filled with love letters from various foreign ladies of celebrity? Were his wealth, his titles, his power almost royal, his great name, his beauty and courtliness not equal to the conquest of one timid noble woman? Besides, how much greater the triumph, how much greater the delight, when the resistance of the maiden drops, when she herself willingly, and with a heart beating like that of a seized bird, with burning face and eyes veiled with mist, falls into those arms which are stretched toward her. A quiver passed through Boguslav at thought of that moment, and he desired it as greatly as he did Olenka herself. He hoped always that that moment would come. He writhed, he was impatient, he deceived himself. At one time it seemed to him nearer, at another farther, and then he cried that he was burning, but he did not cease to work. To begin with, he surrounded the maiden with minute care, so that she must be thankful to him and think that he is kind, for he understood that the feeling of gratitude and friendship is that mild and warm flame which only needs to be fanned and it will turn into a great fire. Their frequent intercourse was to bring this about the more surely. Hence, Boguslav showed no insistence, not wishing to chill confidence or frighten it away. At the same time, every look, every touch of the hand, every word was calculated. Nothing passed in vain. Everything was the drop wearing the stone. All that he did for Olenka might be interpreted as the hospitality of a host, that innocent, friendly attraction which one person feels for another, but still it was done to create love. The boundary was purposely blurred and indefinite, so that to pass it would become easy in time, and thus the maiden might the more lightly wander into those labyrinths where each form might mean something or nothing. That play did not agree, it is true, with the native impulsiveness of Boguslav. Still, he restrained himself, for he judged that that alone would lead to the object, and at the same time, he found in it such satisfaction as the spider finds when weaving his web, 
the traitorous bird-catcher when spreading his net, or the hunter tracking patiently and with endurance the wild beast. His own penetration, subtlety, and quickness, developed by life at the French court, amused the prince. He entertained Palina Alexandra as if she were a sovereign princess, but in such a way that again it was not easy for her to divine whether this was done exclusively for her, or whether it flowed from his innate and acquired politeness toward the fair sex in general. It is true that he made her the chief person in all the entertainments, plays, cavalcades, and hunting expeditions, but this came somewhat from the nature of things. After the departure of Janusz's princess to Kurland, she was really first among the ladies at Taurogi. A multitude of noble ladies from all Zhmuzh had taken refuge in Taurogi, as in a place lying near the boundary, so as to be protected by the Swedes under the guardianship of the prince. But they recognized Panina Bilevich as first among all, since she was the daughter of the most noted family. And while the whole commonwealth was swimming in blood, there was no end to entertainments. You would have said that the king's court, with all the courtiers and ladies, had gone to the country for leisure and entertainment. Boguslav ruled as an absolute monarch in Taurogi and in all adjoining electoral Prussia, in which he was frequently a guest. Therefore, everything was at his orders. Towns furnished money and troops on his notes. The Prussian nobles came gladly, in carriages and on horseback, to his feasts, hunts, and tournaments. Boguslav even renewed, in honour of his lady, the conflicts of knights within barriers, which were already in disuse. On a certain occasion he took active part in them, dressed in silver armour and girded with a silver sash which Panina Bilevich had to bind on him, he hurled from their horses four of the first knights of Prussia, Ketling V and Sakovich VI, though the last had such gigantic strength that he stopped carriages in their course by seizing a hind wheel. And what enthusiasm rose in the crowd of spectators when afterward the silver-clad knight kneeling before his lady, took from her hand the crown of victory. Shouts rang like the thunder of cannon, handkerchiefs were waving, flags were lowered, but he raised his visor and looked into her blushing face with his beautiful eyes, pressing at the same time her hand to his lips. Another time, when in the enclosure, a raging bear was fighting with dogs and had torn them all one after another, the prince, dressed only in light Spanish costume, sprang in with his spear and pierced not only the savage beast, but also a soldier who, seeing the moment of danger, had sprung to his aid. Panina Alexandra, the granddaughter of an old soldier, reared in traditions of blood, war and reverence for knightly superiority, could not restrain at sight of these deeds her wonder and even homage for she had been taught from childhood to esteem bravery as almost the highest quality of man. Meanwhile, the prince gave daily proofs of daring almost beyond human, and always in honour of her. The assembled guests, in their praises and enthusiasm for the prince, which were so great that even a deity might be satisfied with them, 
were forced involuntarily to connect in their conversations the name of Panina Bilevich with the name of Boguslav. He was silent, but with his eyes he told her what he did not dare to utter with his lips. The spell surrounded her perfectly. Everything was so combined as to bring them together, to connect them, and at the same time to separate them from the throng of other people. It was difficult for any one to mention him without mentioning her. Into the thoughts of Alenka herself, Boguslav was thrust with an irresistible force. Every moment of the day was so arranged as to lend power to the spell. In the evening, after amusements, the chambers were lighted by many coloured lamps casting mysterious rays, as if from the land of splendid dreams transferred to reality. Intoxicating eastern odours filled the air. The low sounds of invisible harps, lutes and other instruments fondled the hearing. And in the midst of these odours, lights, sounds, he moved in the glory of universal homage, like an enchanted king's son in a myth-tale, beautiful, knightly, sun-bright from jewels, and as deeply in love as a shepherd. What maiden could resist these spells? What virtue would not grow faint amid such allurements? But to avoid the prince there was no possibility for one living with him under the same roof, and enjoying his hospitality, which, though given perforce, was still dispensed with sincerity and in real lordly fashion. Besides, Alenka had gone without unwillingness to Taurogi, for she wished to be far from hideous Kiedani, as she preferred to Janusz, an open traitor, the knightly Boguslav, who feigned love for the deserted king and the country. Hence, in the beginning of her visit at Taurogi, she was full of friendly feeling for the young prince, and seeing soon how far he was striving for her friendship, she used her influence more than once to do good to people. During the third month of her stay, a certain artillery officer, a friend of Ketling, was condemned by the prince to be shot. Panina Bilevich, hearing of this from the young Scot, interceded for him. A divinity may command, not implore, said Boguslav to her, and tearing the sentence of death, he threw it at her feet. Ordain, command, I will burn Taurogi if at that price I can call forth on your face even a smile. I ask no other reward save this, that you be joyous and forget that which once pained you. She could not be joyous, having pain in her heart, pity and an unutterable contempt for the man whom she had loved with first love and who at that time was in her eyes a worse criminal than a parricide. That Kmichitz, promising to sell the king for gold as Judas sold Christ, became fouler and more repulsive in her eyes, till in the course of time he was turned into a human monster, a grief and reproach to her. She could not forgive herself for having loved him, and at the same time she could not forget him while she hated in view of these feelings, it was indeed difficult for her even to feign gladness. But still she had to be thankful to the priests even for this, that he would not put his hand to Kmichitz's crime and for all that he had done for her. 
It was a wonder to her that the prince, such a knight and so full of noble feeling, did not hasten to the rescue of the country, since he had not consented to the intrigues of Janusz. But she judged that such a statesman knew what he was doing, and was forced by a policy which she, with her simple maiden's mind, could not sound. Boguslav told her also, explaining his frequent journeys to Prussian Tilsa, which was nearby, that his strength was failing him from overwork, that he was conducting negotiations between Jan Kazimir, Karl Gustav and the Elector, and that he hoped to bring the country out of difficulty. Not for rewards, not for offices do I do this, said he to her. I will sacrifice my cousin Janusz, who was to me a father, for I know not whether I shall be able to implore his life for him from the animosity of Queen Ludwika, but I will do what my conscience and love for the dear mother, my country, demands. When he spoke thus, with sadness on his delicate face, with eyes turned to the ceiling, he seemed to her as lofty as those heroes of antiquity of which Heraclius Bilevich had told her, and of whom he himself had read in Cornelius Nepos, and the heart swelled within her with admiration and homage. By degrees it went so far that when thoughts of the hated Andrei Kmichits had tortured her too much, she thought of Boguslav to cure and strengthen herself. Kmichits became for her a terrible and gloomy darkness. Boguslav, light in which every troubled soul would gladly bathe itself. The sword-bearer and Panina Kulvietz, whom they had brought also from Vodokti, pushed Olenka still more along that incline by singing hymns of praise from morning till night in honour of Boguslav. The sword-bearer and the aunt wearied the prince, it is true, so that he had been thinking how to get rid of them politely. But he won them to himself, especially the sword-bearer, who, though at first displeased and even enraged, still could not fight against the friendship and favours of Boguslav. If Boguslav had been merely a noble of noted stock, but not Radzivil, nor a prince, not a magnate invested with almost the majesty of a monarch, perhaps Panina Bilevich might have loved him for life and death in spite of the will of the old colonel, which left her a choice only between the cloister and Kmichits. But she was a stern lady for her own self, and a very just soul. Therefore she did not even admit to her head a dream of anything save gratitude and admiration so far as the prince was concerned. Her family was not so great that she could become the wife of Radzivil, and was too great for her to become his mistress. She looked on him, therefore, as she would on the king, were she at the king's court. In vain did Boguslav endeavour to give her other thoughts. In vain did he, forgetting himself in love, partly from calculation, partly from enthusiasm, repeat what he had said the first evening in Kiedani, that the Rajivils had married ordinary noble women more than once. These thoughts did not cling to her, as water does not cling to the breast of a swan, and she remained as she had been, thankful, friendly, homage-giving, seeking consolation in the thought of a hero, but undisturbed in heart. He could not catch her through her feelings, 
though often it seemed to him that he was near his object. But he saw himself with shame and internal anger that he was not so daring with her as he had been with the first ladies in Paris, Brussels and Amsterdam. Perhaps this was because he was really in love, and perhaps because in that lady, in her face, in her dark brows and stern eyes, there was that which enforced respect. Kmichitz was the one and only man who in his time did not submit to that influence and paid no regard, prepared boldly to kiss those proud eyes and stern lips. But Kmichitz was her betrothed. All other cavaliers, beginning with Pan Vodiovsky and ending with the very vulgar Prussian nobles in Taurogi and the prince himself, were less confident with her than with other ladies in the same condition. Impulsiveness carried away the prince, but when, once in a carriage, he pressed against her feet, whispering at the same time, Fear not! She answered that she did fear to regret the confidence reposed in him. Boguslave was confused and returned to his former method of conquering her heart by degrees. But his patience was becoming exhausted. Gradually he began to forget the terrible dream. He began to think more frequently of what Sakovitch had counselled, and that the Bileviches would all perish in the war. His desires tormented him more powerfully when a certain event changed completely the course of affairs in Taurogi. One day, news came like a thunderbolt that Tikotsin was taken by Pan Sapeha and that Prince Janusz had lost his life in the ruins of the castle. Everything began to seethe in Taurogi. Boguslav himself sprang up and went off that same day to Königsberg, where he was to see the ministers of the King of Sweden and the Elector. His stay there exceeded his original plan. Meanwhile, bodies of Prussian and even of Swedish troops were assembling at Taurogi. Men began to speak of an expedition against Sapieha. The naked truth was coming to the surface more and more clearly, that Boguslav was a partisan of the Swedes as well as his cousin Janusz. It happened that at the same time the sword-bearer of Rosseni received news of the burning of his native Bilevice by the troops of Lohenhaupt, who, after defeating the insurgents in Zhmuj at Shavli, ravaged the whole country with fire and sword. The old noble sprang up and set out, wishing to see the damage with his own eyes, and Prince Boguslav did not detain him, but sent him off willingly, adding at parting, Now you will understand why I brought you to Taurogi, for, speaking plainly, you owe your life to me. Olyenka remained alone with Panina Kulvietz. They shut themselves up in their own chambers at once, and received no one but a few women. When these women brought tidings that the prince was preparing an expedition against the Poles, Olenka would not believe them at first, but wishing to be certain, she gave orders to summon Ketling, for she knew that from her the young Scot would hide nothing. He appeared before her at once, happy that he was called, that for a time he could speak with her who had taken possession of his soul. 
Cavalier, said Panana Bilevich, so many reports are circulating about Chaurogi that we are wandering as in a forest. Some say that the Prince Voyevoda died a natural death, others that he was born apart on sabres. What was the cause of his death? Ketling hesitated for a while. It was evident that he was struggling with innate indecision. At last he blushed greatly and said, You are the cause of the fall and the death of Prince Janusz. I? asked Panana Bilevich with amazement. You, for our prince chose to remain in Taurogi rather than go to relieve his cousin. He forgot everything near you, my lady. Now she blushed in her turn like a purple rose, and a moment of silence followed. The Scot stood, hat in hand, with downcast eyes, his head bent in a posture full of homage and respect. At last he raised his head, shook his bright curls, and said, My lady, if these words have offended you, let me kneel down and beg forgiveness. Do not, said she quickly, seeing that the young knight was bending his knees already. I know that what you have said was said with a clean heart, for I have long noticed that you wish me well. The officer raised his blue eyes, and putting his hand on his heart, with a voice as low as the whisper of a breeze, and as sad as a sigh, replied, Oh, my lady, my lady! At this moment he was frightened lest he had said too much, and again he bent his head toward his bosom and took the posture of a courtier who is listening to the commands of a queen. I am here among strangers without a guardian, said Olenka, and though I shall be able to watch over myself alone, and God will preserve me from harm, still I need the aid of men also. Do you wish to be my brother? Do you wish to warn me in need, so that I may know what to do and avoid every snare? As she said this, she extended her hand, but he kneeled in spite of her prohibition and kissed the tips of her fingers. Tell me, said she, what is happening around me? The prince loves you, said Ketling. Have you not seen that? She covered her face with her hands. I saw and I did not see. At times it seemed to me that he was only very kind. Kind, repeated Ketling, like an echo. But when it came into my head that I, unfortunate woman, might rouse in him unhappy wishes, I quieted myself with this, that no danger threatened me from him. I was thankful to him for what he had done, though God sees that I did not look for new kindnesses, since I feared those he had already shown me. Ketling breathed more freely. May I speak boldly? asked he. Speak. The prince has only two confidants, Pan Sarkovich and Patterson, but Patterson is very friendly to me, for we come from the same country, and he carried me in his arms. What I know, I know from him. The prince loves you. Desires are burning in him as pitch in a pine torch. All things done here, all these feasts, hunts, tournaments, 
through which, thanks to the princess hand, blood is flowing from my mouth yet, were arranged for you. The prince loves you, my lady, to distraction, but with an impure fire, for he wishes to disgrace not to marry you. For though he could not find a worthier, even if he were king of the whole world, not merely a prince, still he thinks of another. The princess, Janusz's daughter, and her fortune are predestined to him. I learned this from Patterson, and the great God, whose gospel I take here to witness, knows that I speak the pure truth. Do not believe the prince, do not trust his kindness, do not feel safe in his moderation. Watch, guard yourself, for they are plotting treason against you here at every step. The breath is stopping in my breast from what Patterson has told me. There is not a criminal in the world equal to Sakovich. I cannot speak of him, I cannot. Were it not for the oath which I have taken to guard the prince, this hand and this sword would free you from continual danger. But I would slay Sakovich first. This is true. Him first before all men, even before those who in my own country shed my father's blood, took my fortune, made me a wanderer and a hireling. Here, Ketling trembled from emotion. For a while, he merely pressed the hilt of his sword with his hand, not being able to utter a word. Then he recovered, and in one breath told what methods Sakovich had suggested to the prince. Panana Alexandra, to his great surprise, bore herself calmly enough while looking at the threatening precipice before her. Only her face grew pale and became still more serious. Unbending resolution was reflected in her stern look. I shall be able to save myself, said she, so help me God and the Holy Cross. The prince has not consented hitherto to follow Sakovici's counsel, added Ketling. But when he sees that the road he has chosen leads to nothing, and he began to tell the reasons which restrained Boguslav, the lady listened with frowning brow, but not with superfluous attention, for she had already begun to ponder on means to wrest herself free of this terrible guardianship. But there was not a place in the whole country unsprinkled with blood, and plans of flight did not seem to her clear. Hence she preferred not to speak of them. Cavalier, said she at last, answer me one question. Is Prince Boguslav on the side of the King of Sweden or the King of Poland? It is a secret to none of us, answered the young officer, that the prince wishes the division of this commonwealth so as to make of Lithuania an independent principality for himself. Here Ketling was silent, and you would have thought that his mind was following involuntarily the thoughts of Olenka, for after a while he added, the elector and the Swedes are at the service of the prince, and since they will occupy the commonwealth, there is no place in which to hide from him. Olenka made no answer. The young man waited a while longer to learn if she would ask him other questions. But when she was silent, occupied with her own thoughts, he felt that it was not proper for him to interrupt her. Therefore, he bent double in a parting bow, sweeping the floor with the feathers in his cap. I thank you, cavalier, said Olenka, extending her hand to him. 
The officer, without turning, withdrew toward the door. All at once there appeared on her face a slight flush. She hesitated a moment and then said, One word, Cavalier. Every word is for me a favour. Did you know Pan Andrei Kmichitz? I made his acquaintance, my lady, in Kedane. I saw him the last time in Pilvishki, when we were marching hither from Potlashie. Is what the prince says true, that Pan Kmichitz offered to do violence to the person of the King of Poland? I know not, my lady. It is known to me that they took counsel together in Pilvishki. Then the prince went with Pan Kmichitz to the forest, and it was so long before he returned that Patterson was alarmed and sent troops to meet him. I led those troops. We met the prince. I saw that he was greatly changed, as if strong emotion had passed through his soul. He was talking to himself, which never happens to him. I heard how he said, The devil would have undertaken that. I know nothing more. But later, when the prince mentioned what Kmichitz offered, I thought, If this was it, it must be true. Panana Bilevich pressed her lips together. I thank you, said she, and after a while she was alone. The thought of flight mastered her thoroughly. She determined at any price to tear herself from those infamous places and from the power of that treacherous prince. But where was she to find refuge? The villages and towns were in Swedish hands. The cloisters were ruined, the castles levelled with the earth. The whole country was swarming with soldiers, and with worse than soldiers, with fugitives from the army, robbers, all kinds of ruffians. What fate could be waiting for a maiden cast as a prey to that storm? Who would go with her? Her aunt Kulvietz, her uncle, and a few of his servants. Whose power would protect her? Kettling would go, perhaps. Maybe a handful of faithful soldiers and friends might even be found who would accompany him. But as Kettling had fallen in love with her beyond question, then how was she to incur a debt of gratitude to him, which she would have to pay afterward with a great price? Finally, what right had she to choose the career of that young man, scarcely more than a youth, and expose it to pursuit, to persecution, to ruin, if she could not offer him anything in return save friendship. Therefore, she asked herself what was she to do, whither was she to flee, since here and there destruction threatened her, here and there disgrace. In such a struggle of soul she began to pray ardently, and more especially did she repeat one prayer with earnestness, to which the old colonel had constant recourse in evil times, beginning with the words, God saved thee with thy infant from the malice of Herod. In Egypt he straightened the road for thy safe passage. At this moment a great whirlwind rose, and the trees in the garden began to make a tremendous noise. All at once, the praying lady remembered the wilderness on the borders of which she had grown up from infancy, and the thought that in the wilderness she would find the only safe refuge flew through her head like lightning. Then Olenka breathed deeply, for she had found at last what she had been seeking. 
to Zielonka, to Rogowska. There the enemy would not go, the ruffian would not seek booty. There a man of the place, if he forgot himself, might go astray and wander till death. What must it be to a stranger not knowing the road? There the Domasheviches, the smoky Stikans, and if they are gone, if they have followed Pan Vorovsky, it is possible to go by those forests far beyond and seek quiet in other wildernesses. The remembrance of Pan Vorovsky rejoiced Olenka. Oh, if she had such a protector! He was a genuine soldier. His was a sabre under which she might take refuge from Kmichits and the Rajivils themselves. Now it occurred to her that he was the man who had advised when he caught Kmichits in Bielevice to seek safety in the Białowieża wilderness. And he spoke wisely. Rogowska and Zielonka are too near the Rajivils, and near Białowieża stands that Sapieha who rubbed from the face of the earth the most terrible Rajivil. To Białowieża then, to Białowieża, even today, tomorrow, only let her uncle come, she would not delay. The dark depths of Białowieża will protect her, and afterward, when the storm passes, the cloister. There only can be real peace and forgetfulness of all men, of all pain, sorrow and contempt. End of chapter 41 Recording by David Granville Young